Welcome to the Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of mainstream media and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub podcast, Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should be spending more time and attention focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Lawrence Wright, a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and journalist at The New Yorker. His latest book is The Plague Year, America in the Time of COVID. I'm grateful to speak to Lawrence about the book's key ideas, insights, and analysis about the extraordinary past 24 months. Let's start big picture. You observe in the book that COVID-19 arrived in America at what you describe as the country's most vulnerable moment. How you define that vulnerability, though, may surprise some listeners. It's not merely a commentary on President Trump or his administration per se. You're referring to something much deeper. You want to start by laying out the main conditions and factors that led to the country's vulnerability to this virus. I think uh, America had been inclining towards disunion for many years, and uh, Trump was just uh, an expression of that. Uh, we, you know, in part. I think the the end of the Cold War left America in a in an odd spot. You know, we had fortified ourselves against the formidable enemy, and then that enemy disappeared. And it's interesting to think about how much the Cold War defined the American way of life, and we won that contest. But it left us alone in the world, a superpower with no rivals, and in an absence of mission. And I think that the decay in American society really began at that moment. You know, we had all the instruments available, the, the public health. And, you know, we were rated number one in the world in terms of being able to cope with a crisis like this. And in the event, we behaved nearly the worst in, in the world. Our death count is higher than any other nation. And the rate of death is, is you know, at the bottom. So what would account for that? And, you know, if you look at countries that did well, they're marked by a, a high degree of trust in their governments and institutions. And, you know, we're the very opposite. And I think with all of our advantages, it was that civil disunion that caused us to fall apart and, and fail so badly in the face of this pandemic. You, you mentioned, Lawrence, that the Cold War served as a, a kind of animating um, sense of uh, source of meaning and purpose. Um, for America writ large, um, one could make the case that that applies to the conservative American conservative movement in particular. I recently spoke to David Frum about how there's a case that the conservative worldview ought to have been well-equipped to deal with COVID-19. Conservatives, broadly speaking, tend to be concerned with threats and, and preference security and order. You describe in the book, for instance, how administration official Matt Pottinger was often ahead of the curve by following these instincts. 
yet he was obviously an outlier. Why do you think the Trump administration came to adopt its skepticism and disregard in response to the pandemic? Well, since the Reagan era, the conservatism in America has turned itself on uh, government itself as being the, the enemy. Reagan actually said that, the problem anyway. But the enemy had been the Soviet Union. Then it became ourselves. It became our own government. And uh, so for decades, uh, you know, conservative leaders in the United States have been undermining the federal government and the state governments in whatever cities they had under their control. So, you know, that once again, you know, America had been a nation that could rally to the flag because we were standing up against something. And, you know, although we had a conservative and liberal branch branches in our country, they were pretty much united on the need uh, to resist the Soviet Union. And that reason for disunion disappeared. And that's when the conservative movement turned its guns on the U.S. government. We've been talking about the, the Soviet Union so far and, and its place in um, shaping American politics and policy um, during the Cold War. Let's turn the conversation to an, another potential geopolitical foe, um, China. Uh, your book provides significant insights into the Chinese government's lack of transparency and cooperation in the early days of the pandemic. Are you surprised that there hasn't been more international scrutiny or criticism of China's response? And if so, what, what do you attribute that to? Well, there has been a, a fair amount of international outcry about China. Uh, yes, it's somewhat subdued. It's a, that, that, that fact is explained by China's increased significance in the world and the resistance of outlets to uh, governments and businesses to challenge China, uh, fearing that they might lose some kind of political or economic advantage. And yet, you know, China's own behavior is what makes the lab leak hypothesis far more plausible than it might otherwise be. Had they thrown open their doors to their labs and invited the international community in to do serious investigation and assistance, then we would know far better, is this a plausible theory or not? But right now, there are two possible routes for this virus to have been created. One was natural. It came from a bat. It probably went through an intermediate animal and then from that animal into humans. And that's a perfectly plausible scenario, although there has been no evidence to support it so far. And the other is that it came out of a lab, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where uh, samples, bat samples uh, with coronavirus have been collected and experimented on doing what were called gain-of-function experiments in very low security. And it's equally plausible that a lab worker there, maybe she got infected. Maybe she didn't even have symptoms. She just walked out of the lab carrying this incredibly dangerous virus that was going to kill millions of people around the globe. If we could talk a bit about the American response in general and something you document in the book in particular, which is the degree of factionalism in the early days of the pandemic, including, for instance, in the form of the coronavirus tax force, which was eventually led by Vice President Mike Pence. Do you think this factionalism and conflict within the American government was especially marked in the Trump administration? Or as we've seen in recent weeks in the Biden administration, 
is the pandemic's response is inherent trade-offs simply bound to divide officials based on their roles and personal preferences? I, I think that's largely true, Sean, that, you know, people in the coronavirus task force and in the White House and, and the Trump administration at large were fighting their interests. And uh, so the Treasury Department had wanted nothing to do with, you know, closing off uh, travel from China. Uh, that was going to bankrupt the airlines. You know, the tourist industry would go crazy. We don't even want to stop the cruise ships. You know, there's a big industry in Florida. And and even the public health contingent was at odds with itself and with its history. Uh, it was public health orthodoxy, for instance, that um, shutting off travel doesn't help in a pandemic. You know, by the time you get around to it, the disease has already jumped across the border. Uh, the public health contingent was fixated on the idea that this is a, a virus-like influenza. And it was not. And, you know, it, for one thing, it was marked by a lot of asymptomatic infections, which had we known that, our response would have been different. But it was that paradigm that was in the head of the public health officials, you know, masks and such things wouldn't be that useful in that case, that allowed this thing to get ahead of us. And then, uh, you know, there was just a sense of defensiveness especially in some of the failing institutions in our public health establishment, such as the CDC and the FDA, they were not up to the task and uh, they were covering their ass. And that, they, that cost us untold numbers of lives. Let's uh, talk about one of those failures. Well, the book observes that Operation Warp Speed may have contributed to expedited progress on vaccines. The book observes, uh, by contrast, the kind of debacle with respect to COVID-19 tests that remain in short supply even today. What, in your view, happened? What went wrong when it came to testing? Well, you know, first of all, CDC was known worldwide for its excellence in developing tests. And uh, so nobody outside of the institution could have imagined that it would fumble the ball so, so badly. And, you know, one can, can, one can say that incompetence uh, made a, a huge difference, and it did, because, you know, when the FDA went in to examine, you know, what was going on, they found almost instantly that the lab was contaminated. Uh, and why was it contaminated? They were processing tests of people who were infected in the same laboratory as they were developing the test. So the tests really weren't, there was nothing wrong with the tests. They were accurately <laughs> determining that, that there was virus there. And, uh, but the other thing that, you know, hasn't really been said in this is corruption, scientific corruption. The, the CDC knew at least the elements that were in control of sending out the developing and sending out the test. They knew it was a failure. They knew it was going to fail 30% of the time at least. And yet they went ahead and sent out the test and didn't tell anybody. That's corrupt. It's not just incompetent. It's in, it's, they're lying about it. And how are we to excuse that? Has anybody been held to account? No. So will, will corruption uh, be rooted out? Not unless people are held to account. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., 
into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You know, I think listeners will hear in, um, a common thread throughout your ha- answers about uh, some deep structural issues that explain the American government's suboptimal response to the pandemic. Uh, Lawrence, what's interesting when reading your book is it, it reminded me in some ways of your 2006 book, The Looming Tower, which tells the story of the U.S. government's failure to anticipate and prepare for the 9-11 attacks. Is there a common lesson here between these two separate experiences about the American state capacity to respond to crisis? Well, the way I look at it, John, is that, uh, you know, both 9-11 and the coronavirus pandemic were failures of intelligence. And um, I mean, I, I had written a novel that came out in the middle of the pandemic that was about a pandemic that would, you know, and I had done this research talking to public health officials employed by the U.S. government who told me that there was going to, a pandemic was, we were overdue for one, it was going to come anytime, and this is what it would look like. And so I translated all that into a novel. And the Trump administration discarded the Obama playbook for pandemics, but they had their own workshop. So they create, they had a, a essentially a rule book for how to govern a pandemic, and they didn't pay attention to their own rules. So incompetence is uh, a big part of it. But basically, you know, when we talk about intelligence, we're always trying to get intelligence about what other nations are doing to us or planning to do. I think that where we're really failing in intelligence is knowing what kind of country we are. You know, we should we should do more examination about what is America now, because people have these misguided ideas and antiquated ideas about America. And we're not that country anymore. We're not the country that won World War II. We're not, you know, the country that created the great society. We're not that country anymore. And we should either face up to it or change. And uh, so far, I don't see that we've done either very well. If I can stay on the topic of your previous book for a minute, the 9-11 attacks, of course, ultimately led to sweeping legislative and institutional reforms. What do you anticipate the takeaways will be from the inadequacies of the pandemic response? Do you envision 9-11-like changes in, the, in law or um, the organizations involved in the pandemic response? I don't know. I'm not sure how we're going to, in the long term, react to this. I, I had talked to a, a medical historian in Bologna, Italy, Gianna Pamata, and I asked her um, in the sweep of history, what pandemic does this resemble in your mind? And she said what she thought of was the Black Plague in Italy in the 14th century. And um, not in terms of the scale of death. I mean, it killed a third of Europe. But what happened with the plague is that, you know, this was in the middle of the, you know, the dark ages, the middle ages. And, uh, you know, medicine was in some extent based on astrology. You know, so people began to realize that whatever they were doing didn't work. And so they understood that their societies were in some way a failure and feudalism and, 
you know, primitive uh, medical, uh, you know, discounting science, uh, all of those things were leading society down a dark road. And that realization is what opened the minds and the open minds is what led to the Renaissance. So one can say that the Renaissance was really the child of the Black Plague. Now, America's faced great challenges and has in recent history, let's say start with World War II, took, you know, became the strongest uh, country in the history of the world. And then in the Great Depression, we reformed our economy and our society in the middle of the depression, making it stronger and more compassionate and more competent. But then, you know, 9-11, we invaded Iraq and Afghanistan and tortured people in, in Guantanamo. It's not a guarantee that a tragedy that can lead to a kind of enlightenment, social enlightenment. Uh, but it has in the past. It could again. On the other hand, we could simply try to put this past us as People all over the world did with the 1918 flu. You know, very little was learned, <laughs> I can say. And socially, in America, it led to kind of the roaring 20s. I mean, women's suffrage came about. But, you know, it was a, a giddy, uh, aimless period in our history. And it feels kind of like what we're going through now. Just a couple of final questions, Lawrence. You know, I'm struck that a couple of times you referred to the Cold War as crucial to understanding the evolution of American politics and society and so on. Do you think that the pandemic will be a catalyst uh, for a growing U.S.-Chinese rivalry that some scholars and, and commentators have actually described as a new Cold War or Cold War 2.0? I think it's headed in that direction. It's not necessary that it be that way. What stands in the way of a Cold War with China is the interdependence of each of the countries. Uh, economically, uh, we're very much wed. And so there are reasons not to go in that direction. And it's both sides are, are, are responsible for the loggerheads that we're at now. Uh, it's not just an American problem. China has behaved very poorly and, uh, you know, it may well be responsible for the creation of this virus, but we don't know. And we won't know. The only way we will know is some whistleblower in the lab says something, or we find the animal in nature that may have been infected and given it to humans. Then we would know. But until then, China will remain under suspicion. And it's, you know, it's rough uh, way with other countries that has adopted this warrior diplomacy is losing friends all over the world. It's a mystery. If you could call that diplomacy. I mean, it's sort of the opposite. China is making itself felt as a brute, and America is making itself felt as a feckless uh, former power. And so that's a bad combination uh, right now. And, you know, I think both countries have a much stronger reason to get along than they do to fight each other. But that doesn't mean that they'll come to their senses. Final question. Uh, we've talked a bit today about the importance of trust and social cohesion as crucial ingredients in responding to a crisis. Lawrence, you won't be surprised to hear that Canada has a, a great interest in as um, uh, dependent on the United States um, in economically in terms of national security and so on, has a great interest in uh, American society restoring a sense of trust and cohesion and, and purpose. 
Is there any reason to be optimistic? Do you see seeds in any aspect of American society for uh, a reinvigoration of the, the trust, cohesion and purpose that that really uh, was the at the core of uh, of the, the rise of America in the in the 20th century? Well, look on, you know, the things that are encouraging. Uh, one is the, the, the movement of science. Uh, I think just immunology took a giant leap. And, you know, the mRNA vaccines, the mRNA had been around for a while, but never widely used. And now, you know, the new designs of microbiology that has taken place to create these new vaccines, the paradigm of Operation Warp Speed, where the government, for the first time in such a long time, got wholeheartedly behind uh, a scientific endeavor, and it succeeded. Yes, there are a lot of science deniers in our society. And, you know, we have a tremendous amount of work to do to try to disenchant the the people who are following these illusory uh, cults like QAnon and uh, the, you know, the kind of MAGA berserkness that took over America. There's a lot of work ahead to change that. But the nice thing now is we know. I mean, the pandemic was like an x-ray into our society so we could see all the broken places. And now we know. And you can't repair a society without knowing what's wrong. And I think at least we know what's wrong. Whether we have the national determination to actually remedy those problems and, and restore ourselves to moral and intellectual and economic strength, that's the question. And, you know, I, every day I worry about it and pray that we, we, we can make that change. And if that's the feeling that most Americans have, then we will. Uh, well, Lawrence, if a good intelligence starts at home, people would be wise to read your book, The Plague Year, America in the Time of COVID. I was honored to speak with you and get your insights and analysis of this extraordinary time in American life. Uh, thank you for joining us for today's Hub Dialogue. Been a pleasure for me too, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.